Welcome to the Peace Catalyst podcast, where we share stories to inspire, uplift, and encourage you in your peacemaking journey. I'm Becca Tyvel, and I'm joining you all from the Washington, D.C. area. And as always, I'm joined by my wonderful co-host, Allie Bernison. Hey, everyone. I'm Allie, and I am joining you from Los Angeles, California. If you enjoy the Peace Catalyst podcast, please do us a favor and take some time to rate and review the podcast on Apple. It really helps boost our visibility and encourages others to give us a listen. So this week, we are chatting with Ibrahim Anli and Mehmet Daracholu of the Rumi Forum, a Washington, D.C.-based organization working towards peace through interfaith dialogue and through building intercultural understanding. Ibrahim Anli, executive director of the Rumi Forum, is a civic entrepreneur with a career record that bridges nonprofit and academic experience. He is currently a volunteer instructor for the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at George Mason University, a member of Braver Angels Scholars Council, and a member of the Public Diplomacy Council of America. Ibrahim writes opinions in his independent blog and has published peer-reviewed book chapters and articles. He holds a BA in economics from Istanbul University, an MA in conflict analysis and resolution from Sabanji University, and a certificate in strategic management for leaders of NGOs from Harvard University. And Dr. Mehmet Sarachalu is a community organizer with academic experience who brings passion and leadership together. Previously, he served as the executive director of Rumi Forum in Maryland and the government, media, and community affairs director at the Rumi Forum in Washington, D.C., During his graduate studies at the University of Kentucky, he served as the founding president of the Interfaith slash Intercultural Dialogue Organization. He's currently the co-advocacy officer on the Young Professionals Board of the UN Association National Capital Area, a communicator member of the National Press Club, and a member of the Public Diplomacy Council's Citizen Diplomacy Research Group. So we have some really amazing guests this week, really excited to get into this conversation and learn from them about interfaith dialogue and how to build intercultural understanding. And um, this week, our peace quote is appropriately from (laughs) Rumi. It says, yesterday I was clever, so I wanted to change the world. Today I am wise, so I am changing myself. Well, welcome, uh, Ibrahim and Mehmet. It's so wonderful to have you on the podcast. Um, And we're looking forward to learning more about the Rumi Forum and the work that you all are doing. Um, And maybe even, yeah, yeah, it's great to have you. Um, Would you mind sharing a bit about yourselves and your journeys of? kind of getting to where you are today um, as leaders of the Rumi Forum and maybe what got you into this type of um, interfaith dialogue in the first place? Sure. Um, I was born and raised in Turkey and towards the end of my uh, university years, my college years in Istanbul, I was exposed to the idea of interfaith dialogue through the uh, landmark work of Journalists and Writers Foundation, uh, which was Turkey's first interfaith initiative, uh, in the first interfaith initiative in the history of modern Turkey. So I wasn't directly involved with, with it, but in a country where non-Muslims and uh, de- depending on the situation, non-Turks are approached with deep suspicion the foundation's message was incredibly transformative for for millions, including myself. So I already had this appreciation and welcoming uh, attitude towards the concept of interfaith dialogue. Then uh, after my school, I ended up in Washington, D.C. as an international student and started uh, volunteering and attending Rumi Forum 
activities. So my my first that was my first involvement uh, with Rumi Forum. Um, I was here for uh, a brief two years and and left and went back to Turkey and several other uh, countries through my uh, career. And uh, about 15 years later, I was this time back to Washington, D.C. as uh, in my current role as the executive director of Rumi Forum. And I can remember that in... uh, in the short early aftermath of uh, post 9-11, the message disseminated, conveyed by Rumi Forum and other like-minded institutions, interfaith partnerships and initiatives were incredibly helpful to build um, a climate of restraint and engagement here in the United States. That I remember being um, very powerful and uh, very uplifting, motivating for me when I was first encountering Rumi Forum. Wow. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that um, a bit about your journey. And that's that's really powerful to think about all that took place post 9-11 and how different leaders came together to promote um, respect and dignity and love um, as opposed to hatred and violence. So thank you for sharing that. Um, so Mehmet, would you be willing to answer the same question, um, sharing a little bit about yourself and your journey of getting to where you are today um, working with the Rumi Forum? As a community leader with an academic background, I have spent more than 15 years dedicating myself to interfaith dialogue and intercultural outreach with Rumi Forum. Between 2006 and 2013, I started getting involved in these activities as a volunteer graduate student at the University of Kentucky, when we founded the Interfaith Intercultural Dialogue Organization. Since 2013, I have been continuing that involvement at a professional level as a member of the Rumi Forum team in various capacities in Washington, D.C. and in Maryland. Uh, In my latest role, as of summer 2022, I have been serving as the director of Center for Faith, Identity and Globalization, on the Rumi Forum. Thanks, Mehmet. Um, that's great to hear. And yeah, we'll look forward to getting into more about that center um, for faith, identity, and globalization a little bit later in the conversation. Um, so, Ibrahim, could you please describe for our listeners? And I know a little bit, I know quite a bit about the Rumi Forum, but what is the overall approach that you all have to interfaith dialogue and why did you choose that model in particular? Um, and maybe how have you seen it play out as a powerful way to bring people together across differences? Sure. Um, the, the very, the core foundational orbit of, of Rumi Forum, the approach is is Rumi himself, um, not in the metaphorical sense, which is you know symbolically very powerful, but uh, his his story is a summary in one person's life of our approach. Rumi comes from a legal training; he's a jurist by training. He comes from the heart of uh, Sunni orthodoxy, yet he's uh, and he's a devout Muslim. He's strongly. Uh, devoted to to Islamic faith and practice. And at the same time, he comes with this uh, strong mystic dimension, spiritual dimension. This uh, Rumi is not alone. It's not an exception in the the Islamic history, but he is definitely one of the most visible representatives of that mainstream understanding, which suggests, yes, uh, the, the rituals and the practices and the legal textual component of faith is important and uh, we should be mindful of it. But without spirituality, it's going to be uh, just um, called legalism. And we want to avoid that. So uh, Rumi, together with other luminaries during his age, were... The, the pioneers of 
the reconciliation uh, of the legal and mystic schools in Islam. And that tradition has been the, the way of uh, mainstream Muslim life across the globe for, for the last almost 1,000 years. And at the core of its idea is the, is the belief that devotion and openness just inform and feed into one another. There is no uh, contradiction. And any, any contradictory look into that is, um, is a false dichotomy that we should liberate ourselves from. So this informs our work at Rumi Forum in, in the core belief that when people are invited to the uh, interfaith circle, the rule of the rules is that everyone is happily grounded and anchored to their faith. The interfaith engagement is never an arena where doctrines or creeds compete. We are not here to change or engineer one another, uh, let alone compromise any bit of our faiths. So that sits at the um, at the heart of our work. And as I said, the namesake Rumi in his life is one of the most profound representatives of uh, this idea. He, in his life, in his story, devotion and openness travel hand in hand. And out of this, uh, in this millennial tradition, there were uh, many prominent scholars voicing and representing and promoting the same thought, including our honorary chairman, Fethullah Gülen. He is the child of the same tradition with Rumi, although maybe it doesn't manifest itself in exactly same style, uh, but uh, they are from the same mainstream understanding. And our guiding thoughts can be summarized from late pastor Christian Stendhal's uh, three rules in interfaith dialogue. If you want to learn about a people, ask them. Don't ask others about them. So direct encounter truly matters, and we want to be a hub for that. And secondly, don't compare your best with their worst. Human experience is full of ups and downs, and it's very easy to go into reductionism about others just by looking at an individual or a certain historic moment in the story of that community. And third, open space for holy envy in your heart and mind, which means something that you will observe and get inspired from the other may help you reconvert into your own faith, let alone compromise it or even think of com converting to other faiths. No, it will, dialogue is a discovery of the other and the rediscovery of yourself. So these are um, guiding lines and guiding thoughts that shape um, the, the practice of interfaith dialogue at Rumi Forum. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I, I love um, what you were saying about yeah, saying interfaith dialogue is st you staying grounded and rooted in your own faith, but stepping outside of yourself to be able to to respect others, to love others, and to engage in that dialogue. Um, and I loved how you phrased it as a discovery of others and rediscovery of um, our own faith tradition. Um, and yeah, and I also really appreciate what you were saying about um not comparing our our best with the other's worst. I think that's so important um, and, yeah, a really valuable insight. So thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and, Mehmet, I will turn it over to you for anything else um, that you'd like to add. My community leadership skills are formed throughout my adult life among the people I grew up with. As a person inspired by our honorary chairman, Fethullah Gülen, and the Hizmet, which means service, movement, I don't want to narrowly define my contribution to the society that I live in by being or not being an ordained clergy or a theologian. I feel 
like that I'm making a difference by trying to alleviate one of the social ills of the world, which is disunity, emphasized by Mr. Gulen through interfaith dialogue and intercultural outreach activities. Although Rumi Forum is not a religious organization, we are inspired by our faith traditions and universally shared human principles and values. Throughout this time, I relied on the passion and leadership I carried in my heart while reaching out to community organizations, academic institutions, faith congregations, social responsibility partners, and decision makers from the local to the federal level. I tried to bring these instincts and skills together while keeping in mind that the importance of personal friendships and institutional relationships that can make hopefully the world a better place one step and one friend at a time. Thank you, Mehmet. I love how you phrase that. Um, one step and one friend at a time. Um, I think that's all any of us are called to do. And um, thanks for sharing more about the faith-based approach of Rumi Forum as well. Um, I'm wondering if you could share, uh, Ibrahim, what are some of the the tenets of Sufis- Sufism? Am I saying that correctly? Yes. Sufism. Yeah that inform and inspire this kind of dialogue? Um, And what can you share about this dimension of Islam that our audience uh, may not be aware of? Yes, Sufism is, as as you highlighted, is a a dimension of Islam. It's the spiritual dimension. Um, Because of the way Sufis are organized under brotherhoods and sisterhoods, uh, for the immediate outside observer, it might look like a different sect, but it is Islam's uh, spiritual dimension that uh, is present across the board in every uh, Muslim community, no matter what their uh, jurisprudential denomination is. At the core of, um, and it's in the fault of Islam, it is nothing introduced into Islam. Uh, it got institutionalized later on and developed its own lexicon. But um, as, as a phenomenon, it begins with Islam itself. And one, uh, one core teaching is, is the concept of love. Sufis call Rumi the Sultan of love and, uh, and, and is on the on the belief that its entire universe runs on love, even the even the behavior of the galaxies and solar systems is about attraction. So even the in the physical universe, we can comment operates on on love, um, and the, the the Sufis connect their uh, core teachings to several. Uh, to a number of uh, Quranic verses and, and Hadith collection. Uh, for example, uh, the, in, in, there is this Quranic verse that says, um, remember me and I will remember you. So this idea of recollecting the divine names is very central, as we call it, the zikr in, in the Sufi ceremony and, and in their um, day-to-day uh, practices. And... Um, and the other thing is that connects very powerfully to Rumi Forum's work is Sufis have been traditionally uh, masters of um, navigating across cultures. They have been masters of reconciliation and they were their typical behavior was based on um, a disregard of differences, a disregard of boundaries. And, um, and that's why they were, in a way, border transgressors between uh, different groups and different cultures, Muslim, non-Muslim. And, uh, and their, uh, that whole tradition, in fact, uh, gave, um, it was like a counterbalancing during times of uh, crisis and uh, uncertainty and uh, uh, and trouble in in wherever they they were present and 
operated. So it is very spiritual and feminine in its origins. And when you look at the Sufi experience in the first five centuries of Islam, it's not institutionalized. The Sufi order that we see today are the product of Islam's fifth century and onwards. Um, so in, in our work, uh, connecting it to Rumi Forum, uh, we, uh, we are neither a congregation nor, nor a Sufi, uh, Sufi circle or a Sufi brotherhood slash sisterhood. Um, but the, the, the inspiration is, I think, we, we base our understanding on is much closer to that earlier history, the, the time uh, frame when Sufism existed as a concept but not as an institu- institution. The core teachings among many can be uh, listed as humility, um, devotion, sacrifice, sincerity, contemplation, and love. So these are concepts that can be windows into every faith tradition. And, and Sufism um, happened to choose and happen to be representatives of how they manifest within uh, predominantly Muslim communities. Wow, that is so cool. Um, to learn more about that, thank you for sharing. Um, And it's, yeah, there's so much history there that I think probably a lot of our listeners maybe aren't aware of. And so um, thanks for sharing. It's really special um, for all of us to learn more. And Mehmet, I'll hand it over to you to share um, anything else that you'd like to add or illuminate for our audience. We see Sufism from the perspective and um, uh, background of our namesake, Rumi. Uh, he is one of the uh, perfect representatives of the many Sufi devotees whose way of life is to love and be of service to people, to become a perfect human being and thus to have the good pleasure of God. Rumi's path of love within Sufism is inclusiveness, has always attracted people from all cultures and backgrounds. And this is certainly the major reason for Rumi's appeal in, in both the East and the West. The theoretical aspect of this path is Sufism, while the practical aspect is dervishhood. Rumi led the theoretical path as a leader for his time and all times to come after him. In addition, his mature dervishhood taken from this world and decorated with uh, angelic qualities set a good example of devotion to God through the passion and love with which he inspired millions. During his lifetime, there were many people of faiths around Rumi listening to him and respecting him for what he was teaching. Thus, Rumi uh, emerged in a period in which disorders, conflicts, and exploitation lay heavy on the peoples of the world. Throughout this period, Rumi proved himself to be a powerful personality and an eminent scholar, for not only he did talk about compassion and tolerance, but he actually produced an exemplary atmosphere where these values were upheld, thereby opening the door to dialogue through his message. Some of these critical concepts are hard to put in a strictly religious context for some people, since these are also universal and human values. I have constantly reminded these people uh, who are inspired or uh, feel close to Sufism that we only we always need to have our doors open to everyone who may be either neighbors or strangers because in Rumi's understanding there is only room for friends and potential friends in one's heart yeah thanks Mehmet. um it's great to hear from both of you um and um i'm wondering if if you could share with us um some of the transformation that you have witnessed um, or even personally experienced through the work of Rumi Forum. Um, And I'm wondering if maybe one or several stories come to mind when you reflect on organizations, um, history and legacy. 
Yeah, my highlight would be um, Rumi Forum's um, civic diplomacy campaign that continued almost for a decade through study trips to Muslim-majority countries. So these trips continued from 2004 to 2014-15, roughly, almost for a decade. And the Rumi Forum um, hosted around 500 leaders from the greater DC area in trips to Muslim-majority destinations, primarily Turkey. And in the overall, with our nationwide partners, um, Rumi Forum and uh, the, the overall Hizmet Movement Network in the U.S. Uh, hosted 5,000 leaders from all 50 states in those trips. And this campaign was transformative in the more larger collective sense and at the, at the individual level for many of its participants. Remember, after 9-11, there were these two competing narratives in the public arena, the, the narrative of the clash of civilizations and the narrative of uh, dialogue of civilizations. So it's very clear where Rumi Forum sits or stands in this discussion, but how do you disseminate the message? And it's through action and through um, eliciting um, and uh, facilitating real human contact to build a climate where people will build the solid conviction that we are not doomed to a clash of civilizations. It is de deterministic. It is a total disregard of the human agency. There are troubling times there, uh, and there may be future troubling times in the flow of history, but we have the capacity to, uh, to change the course. And um, so it's based on uh, this understanding. And then this campaign of study trips started, taking one delegation after the other to, uh, to Muslim-majority destinations. And the trips combined cultural, professional, and interpersonal exchanges. So visiting, let's say, Asia Minor, Turkey, uh, those historical highlights were, uh, were, they were truly the highlights of the trips, of course, in, in terms of sites visited. But also depending on the configuration of the group, there were professional exchanges between the, between the trip participants and their uh, Turkish counterparts. And uh, the trips were also featuring a good deal of interpersonal exchange, including family home stays. So I, I can just recall scores of moments of uh, transformation between, uh, among the trip participants as well as their hosts. We were not taking the groups to, to the major or touristic sites only, to metropolitan cities or the touristic uh, sites only. Some of the cities that we visited are places that are not known to many Turks even. So we would go into deep heartland of Turkey to, to few small cities which don't necessarily have a heavy tourist traffic and definitely not many foreigners hanging around. And for, the, for many visits, it was the first time of the host families to meet an American, a non-Muslim, a Westerner. So it was transformative for, for both the hosts and full of learning for both the hosts and the participants. In the overall, my, um, and this was one of the largest privately funded civic diplomacy campaigns in the history of Turkey and the United States. And my understanding is that it made um, a significant contribution in building 
a climate here in the U.S. that is supportive to the idea of uh, dialogue and as a counter narrative against this deterministic idea of clash of civilizations. Yeah, um, that's incredible. That's I didn't know that. That's awesome to hear um, and learn more. And I think, you know, we've been learning from a few different organizations that focus on immersive um, experiences like what you're describing and just how transformational those physical journeys of like traveling to those places and also, like you're saying, building relationships with people that they might not have met otherwise and how, how um, yeah, transformational and powerful that is. Um, so thankful thankful for, for you all doing that and for the impact it's having. Um, and I'll hand it over to you, Mehmet, if there's anything, um, any experiences that come to mind or um, transformation that you've witnessed through the Rumi Forum. In this political climate shaped by divisive language and poisonous rhetoric, we need to have sound people in the public sphere reaching out to people from different walks of life, regardless of their cultural, religious, racial, and ethnic backgrounds. I believe that Rumi Forum and its sister organizations around the world, inspired by our honorary chairman, Fethullah Gulen, have filled the gap of disunity to a certain extent through interfaith dialogue and intercultural outreach activities with the goal of reaching harmony. Both within and outside religious communities, our biggest outreach to the wider community often takes place in the month of Ramadan. Each year during Ramadan, Rumi Forum organizes numerous iftars, the breaking of the fast dinner and the sahur's early morning breakfast. We open our doors in different venues to welcome our guests, including Turkish American cultural centers and our community members' homes. I would also say that another transformational um, uh, aspect to our outreach uh, used to take place during our trips um, to study different cultures in Turkey, Central Asia, North Africa. We have taken uh, more than 500 people over the years. And this helped us deepen our relationships and have conversations that uh, we still continue to enjoy. And over the time that we try to continue that relationship, and hopefully in the coming years, we will continue doing uh, those kinds of activities to uh, deepen the impact of that kind of outreach. Thank you, Mehmet. Um, I'm going to actually just go ahead and dive into the next question. Um, for you, Mehmet, um, you've recently launched a research hub called the Center for Faith, Identity, and Globalization. Can you tell us a little bit more about the hub and what your hopes for it are and the current research that you've already published? As an institution, Rumi Forum has built a strong track record in cultivating relationships over its 23-year history. In order to enhance our bridge-building work with a research component, we launched an interdisciplinary center over the summer to strengthen the impact of interfaith initiatives. This initiative, uh, which is dedicated exclusively to substantive research, is already crystallizing thanks to our high-quality research papers authored by our research interns, as we call them, associates. Uh, with the addition of this compartment, Rumi Forum will not only be a hospitable platform for quality content on faith, identity, and globalization, but will also become a contributor to that literature and will fulfill a wider role in realizing the forum's vision by generating qualified written outputs. Our inaugural paper came out in September by Dr. Mark Jurgensmeyer from University of California, Santa Barbara, and Claremont McKenna College on faith, identity, faith and identity in the global era. Our second publication was released in October by our associate, Dana Sultan, a student at the George Washington University on Abraham and covenants in the Quran. Our upcoming publication in November will be a book review by Dr. Craig Considine 
he will examine Dr. Charles Tizen's latest book, The Christian Encounter with Muhammad, How Theologians Have Interpreted the Prophet. And we will continue uh, our publications on a monthly basis with our research areas, including interfaith engagement, religious freedom, globalization, spirituality, religious nationalism, and conflict resolution. Well, that's wonderful. And it's incredible to see how you all are putting such, um, yeah, amazing research and information out there for um, your audience to learn from and for all of us to be more informed as we engage in this kind of um, relationship building. So thank you for for that. And we'll look forward to, um, yeah, staying up to date on everything that y'all are doing um, in that regard. And, um, you know, our audience is um, listening to all of this and possibly filtering through some of their unique um, experiences and current context. And for those who might be wondering, um, you know, how do you take practical steps towards this kind of reconciliation? What advice would you give them? What's what's like a good first or second step, even for someone who maybe is wondering how to reach out to their next door neighbor um, who might belong to a different faith group from themselves, for example? What sort of, yeah, practical advice would you give to them? Yeah, um, there are several things in, in, the, in the concept of dialogue, many times, not always, there is already an openness, uh, but people are understandably um, in need of <clears throat> practical support, as you highlighted, in how to materialize this openness in, into actual uh, work. So we have several guidelines that we constantly convey to our audiences who want to be uh, active to that end in, in their communities. First of all, let's remember that dialogue is not a realm exclusively for the clergy, for the expert, for, for the well-versed and well-trained. So um, it is, it is um, an, an arena that welcomes everyone who is interested in doing this. And that there are types of it that are strictly or more theological, um, but um, there is this four-layer, four-compartment typology of dialogue. One is, in, is, is dialogue of life. So um, they, it includes just doing certain things that you do in, in your daily life that make you happy just doing this with people of other faiths. And the content is not necessarily theologic, theological or religious. Many times it is not at all, but it is just some uh, engaging activity being uh, done with, with people of other faiths. Or it can be dialogue of action, like our food packing program. So again, the content does not have any, uh, any structured conversation on faith, but it is just people getting together and packing food for the, for the needy. Or it can be just dialogue of religious experience. I'm not talking about dialogue of religious knowledge or theology, but when you say experience, it's, it's open to every individual who has some form of experience that he or she is interested in, in sharing with others. So as you see, there are avenues in addition to the strictly theological, scholarly, or clerical exchange. So that uh, we need to convey this um, clearly. And at coming to a more practical level, I would suggest just uh, four main steps. One is to observe. So what is going on in, in my community? Who are the different uh, faith communities and representatives? How visible uh, are they? And uh, what is keeping them busy? So just observe, just understand uh, the terrain. 
And then in the second step, just recruit. By recruit, I mean engaging conversations with, with, with those people based on your observations and just double check your observations with, with maybe some same questions and some other questions. But try to build a circle of similarly interested people who want to do some interfaith work. As you see, I am not getting into any content up until now. Um, sometimes we are just um, understandably excited and tempted into just getting into direct content, but uh, the content should sit on uh, some level of trust, relationship, and rapport. So observe, recruit, and then engage. So at that third step, just find an issue that is equally engaging, motivating, and worthy investment for the for the stakeholders you you reached out to and you had conversations with and this is when some form of content um, comes in and then um, at at the fourth step mobilize and restart that cycle but at the core of this should be conviction and understanding that the process by its nature is invaluable. So sometimes we our short-termist nature pushes us towards thinking, okay, people will be talking and what will happen? What are the deliverables? It's always good to have that ambition, but uh, we should be uh, we should be fair and merciful towards the concept of interfaith dialogue. We should not overburden it. That very process itself is the value. And we should always keep uh, that in mind in, in the work as well at a more abstract level. Yeah, wow. Um, that's so, so good and so much great advice and practical wisdom that, that you just shared. So thank you so much. Yeah, I love what you're saying about this process like it's more about the process and the relationships than it is about a particular outcome or achieving um, <laughs> particular metrics that while that's important but like the focus should be on what's happening within us and between us as people um, in in the midst of that so um, yeah and I love what you shared about dialogue of life too just inviting people from different faiths into to practical everyday things together. And sometimes I think it can be scary to take that first step if we're not comfortable. We've never done that before. But um, yeah, I, I feel like I love what you're saying about just approaching with humility and openness and um, yeah, and learning along the way too. So, uh, and I think there's a grace for that as well. <laughs> I think as long as people are <laughs> willing to be gracious uh, with each other's um, yeah, fumbles and, and whatnot. Um, a lot of beauty can come out of that. Thank you so much. And Mehmet, I'm going to turn it back over to you um, to share any insights um, that you have for our, our listeners. In Gulen's teachings, gaining the approval of God without expecting anything in return from people is a central tenet. In Islamic literature, this is known as the concept of ikhlas or the pure love for God and sincerity. In Gulen's understanding of Islam, even reaching heaven is not a motivating factor and the acquisition of worldly gains does not exist. Being brought up with these teachings in my adult life, expressing religion is not only defined by the five pillars of Islam, but, but also by service to the community and the humanity. I have come across people who question my faith for the volunteer efforts I try to serve others from other religions or those with no religious affiliations. I often responded to them with two quotes from Mr. Gulen. The first one is, quote, accept everyone for who they are. This underlines the importance of listening and understanding each other more than imposing and or, or ordering our point of view. The other one is, quote, have a chair for everyone in your heart, 
And this makes us more embracing of each other to become a compassionate people. Oh, thanks, Mehmet. Um, yeah, it's great to ground ourselves. I love that. Make a chair for everyone in your heart. That's so beautiful. And, you know, we're just coming up on Thanksgiving holiday, too. So I'm thinking about chairs at the table physically as well. Um, <laughs> so how can we, yeah, create more more spaces for people to come together and join us um, at our table, at our whatever that looks like. Um, and yeah, so this has been so, so great. Such a wonderful, rich conversation. Um, so grateful for yeah. you all and the work that you're doing. Um, and grateful to be partnering with you locally on some, some interfaith dialogue um, through scriptural reasoning. And um, I know that, yeah, that kind of dialogue in and of itself is theological, but it leads to um, real relationships coming out of that, which is, and, and I always learn something new about my own faith too, <laughs> my own faith text. And so I'm really grateful for that space and for you all taking the lead on that. Um, is there anything else that you would like to leave our audience with as we close? Today we are experiencing turmoil, unrest, and conflicts everywhere. Yet instead of raising the awareness of the need for understanding, religious devotions are simply being manipulated in the so-called clash of civilizations. Once again, therefore, we need inspirations from Rumi, who is a revered mystic renowned for his understanding and wide embrace and sheds light on the relation of human beings to their creator as well as their interrelations with others. And we need institutions like Rumi Forum and other institutions, including Peace Catalyst International, working towards strengthening a culture of peace, pluralism, and social harmony among faith communities as well as individuals of diverse beliefs, ethnicities, and backgrounds. We strive to achieve this overarching goal by building, informing, and mobilizing an active interfaith dialogue community and we need your help along the way. Thank you for being on this journey with us. Well, thank you, Becca, for, um, for today's session and for the, for the great work Peace Catalyst is, is leading, including this, this podcast. And I always appreciate our collaboration on, on a variety of uh, platforms and avenues, including our scriptural reasoning sessions which I find fascinating and feel like becoming is becoming better and better with, with every new session, new topic, and new uh, study leader, which we invite every month. Um, I Just to motivate uh, ourselves, this is an incomplete journey, and our task is to uh, make this just a pulse of life. You know, some there are certain things that happens to be the, the pulse of the individual's life and the community life that people do have embraced, have internalized. And, uh, and it is just there, part of their main way of mainstream way of life and thinking. Uh, so I think our, uh, our task is to, to bring all those ideas as, uh, as an overarching way of thinking to build, uh, a coherent society and to make sure that all the great uh, freedoms and liberties and prosperity we enjoy is uh, is preserved. So um, I thank you very much for uh, the opportunity to express these thoughts. Yeah, thank you. Thank you both so much. Um, yeah, really grateful to, to learn from both of you. such a great conversation and yeah really grateful to learn from from both of them about the approach of the Rumi forum and some of the faith principles that guide this form of dialogue really grateful to to learn from from this sort of um approach that I think is unique and I love that they draw like guidance and inspiration from Sufism and from Rumi. So 
I was curious to hear more, like, I guess, Allie, from your perspective about sort of the the practical steps of, you know, how do we reach our neighbors who are different from us? I, th- I think even just like, you know, obviously they gave some really great advice for those of us who are passionate about interfaith dialogue and wanting to kind of bring that into our community or initiate that. But I'm also curious just to, to reflect on like, for those of us who maybe like our next door neighbor belongs to a different, different faith group and we want to connect with them. We want to build a relationship, but maybe we feel awkward and we don't know how to take that first step of reaching out. I mean, how would, what would you suggest or what kind of advice would you give Allie? Yeah, that's a great question. And I am by all means, not the expert on this, but I think personally, something that I feel speaks volumes um, or just what I've experienced is just uh, having a a posture, and I feel like that's such an overused word, so I was trying to find a different one in my, in my brain, but it might just be the best way to express it. Having a posture of curiosity when we're speaking with neighbors um, who are different from us, whether that's um, a religious difference or political, um, I think, you know, when something is unknown, obviously the, the human, uh, the very natural human defense is to, um, perhaps fear or want to distance. Um, and so I think having a, yeah, having a, a genuine like disposition of curiosity and, you know, being willing to learn and not um, not ex- as much as we can. I mean, there are certain things that we're not in control over in, in control of, but as as much as we can, um, being ready to receive what they express as the truth, you know, I think we might have these kind of presumptions that we go into interactions with 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 those who are different from us. But I think just letting letting what they say as, reality be. Um, I think that is just so important. And, and I mean, I'm thinking specifically in, in my context, um, I work with a organization that, um, works with families experiencing homelessness. And so, you know, especially with the unhoused community, I think, um, that is first of all, one, one community amongst us that, that are, have all of these perhaps negative narratives connected to them. And um, I think it's easy to make a lot of assumptions of how and why an individual might be unhoused. And so um, taking a bit of my own advice, I think when we're building relationship with our unhoused neighbors, um, and I'm just using this as an example, like just taking their story as their story and not – not immediately judging or valuing it against what, what we think might be true. I think that's just, I don't know. Mm. I think that's important. So I don't know that that's like the only or best piece of advice, but that's a piece of advice that comes to mind. Yeah. That's so good. I think that's so applicable for like, yeah, I love how you have that practical example, but I think it's so applicable for talking to people from, different faith groups, but yeah, anybody who has a different experience or background from us that we're trying to build relationships with, I think, yeah, that's so key. I love how you phrase that, like a posture of curiosity and then like not trying to impose our own like ideas or realities onto others, but really listening and experiencing. Um, Yeah. And also having space for like, mutual sharing of, you know, this is my experience and this is how I see the world. And like, we can talk about that and have an exchange. Um, but like, yeah, to keep it respectful and, um, that's so good. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Yeah. There, there was something else that, um, that Ibrahim shared that really stood out to me because I know we've had others share some, something similar on the podcast before, like this concept of not comparing our best with their worst. 
Mm. Um, And I think that's so important in the context of interfaith dialogue, because I think sometimes we can fall into um, the trap of like, you know, holding an entire people group accountable for the actions of a few. And I think, um, yeah, I know for myself, like I wouldn't want people to associate me, for example, with a white, you know, supremacist right. who, who claims to be a Christian. Like I wouldn't want my people to assume that I associate with that. And then to also have this pressure of like, you know, well, Becca, like, how are you speaking up against that? Or like, what do you, and like, okay, I do think we have a responsibility to speak up against that, but not in the sense of like to validate my identity or to like, you know, prove that I, I don't agree with what that person says or does, if that makes sense. So I think that's, yeah, that really stood out to me personally. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think that is just so simple and practical as just, um, yeah, something to keep in our minds. It doesn't have to just be within religious contexts, but I mean, we Mm -hmm. are increasingly, as we have discussed many times on the podcast, polarized in, um, you know, but then also I think we, and I don't want to say we too much, um, to like put this on all of everyone listening, but, um, but it is, easy if you are on one side of a particular issue or a member of a particular party to view the quote other side as the very extreme of that quote side. Um, And so I think, yeah, I could see that same principle being connected across various contexts of, um, yeah, comparing our best with another group's worst. Um, It's probably just yeah, a, a principle to just adopt interpersonally, you know, in our own relationships. I, I just, I, I really, really appreciate mm-hmm. that. Yeah, that's so true. That's so true. That's so good. Like even in, yeah, friendships or other relationships. And yeah, and you know, I think like in our country, we're seeing like, I don't know enough to say that there is like a distinct rise in these particular sentiments, but like with all of the anti-Semitic like language that's been coming from some pretty, you know, places of power and, and influence. Um, and then of course, like, you know, Islamophobic like sentiments that lead to violence continue to affect lots of, you know, communities in the U S um, and individuals as well. Um, so like there was this attack in New York city where a Muslim a man had approached a Muslim woman and she like refused or I, I can't remember exactly what happened. I think he was, um, yeah, like advancing towards her and she refused. Yeah. And then he, you know, spewed like some anti-Muslim or Islamophobic rhetoric and then, um, like assaulted her basically. So these issues like continue to affect our country, even if we're not like paying attention to it all the time, like those who belong to different faith groups than the majority do face um, these forms of, of hate and discrimination. And so, yeah, I think just it was a reminder for me that this type of reaching out across faith groups to our neighbors and building networks of friendship and um, dialogue is really important. And it's something that doesn't like ever stop being important. I think it's um, not only to like address like conflict or address harms that have been done, but even just to create like the kind of society and communities that we want to, to have where everybody flourishes, everybody can thrive and um, feel like they're living in safety um, and to have dignity and respect as human beings. So yeah, so I was just really grateful for the Rumi Forum, and I'm grateful to be partnering with them, doing scriptural reasoning here in Virginia. Um, is really wonderful, so grateful mm-hmm. for them and what they do. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. And for more info about Peace Catalyst and to help support our peace building work, 
please visit our website at peacecatalyst.org. Thanks, everyone. Bye.